Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Tseng, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Okay, Will, it's been a couple or a few weeks now. Have you finally gotten an account on Jason Miller's Getter? I always had a Getter account. I was original Getter guy, an OG. What's your Getter handle? Well, I can't reveal that because then my Getter will be trolled. So, Will, since you are nowadays a habitual user on the pro-Trump social media network Getter, have you encountered any ISIS militants on the social network yet? Yeah, I mean, Getter has been overrun by ISIS. As a member of Getter, I'm about to make my bayat to the Islamic State. Basically, what's happening is Getter, which longtime listeners may remember, is the social media network, sort of a Twitter slash parlor knockoff created by Trump advisor Jason Miller. Getter has been overrun by adherence to the Islamic State. They're saying things like, inshallah, all the mujahideen will exploit Getter. It's been overrun by ISIS propaganda. Right. And when this was first reported in Politico earlier this week, and when Politico reached out to comment who Jason Miller, he got a little bit saucy about it. Something about Trump world crushing ISIS and this isn't actually a problem. Well, he says... The only ISIS members still alive are keyboard warriors hiding in caves and eating dirt cookies. I don't know if dirt cookies is some kind of like operator slang, but but I do think it's funny to say like the only guys still around are keyboard warriors. And it's like, well, Jason, I mean, the fight is right now on the keyboard over your website and you're losing. (laughs) You need some keyboard warriors, Jason. I do think it's also kind of funny that Getter is supposed to be like, no, this is supposed to be a safe space for a different kind of extremist. You know, like not those guys. So yes, Getter has been overrun by ISIS and I think they're trying to root them out, but somewhat unsuccessfully thus far. Right, and Jason Miller did bring up the point, like after the story came out the other day, he kept tweeting out old stories about how Twitter had an ISIS problem from like a couple or a few years ago. And he was, I I only saw him doing this on Twitter. I I did not check out his Getter account on this. But that is kind of a hilarious move when someone says, oh, is your social media network being infected by Islamist militants? And then you just continue talking about like how much of a big problem it is for (laughs) Twitter.com. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there's a little misdirection here from old Jason Miller, but I don't think this is the last we've heard from Getter, even if the site is currently being overrun with pictures of ISIS people taking Trump hostage. I mean, obviously, that's not ideal for Getter's image, I think. I mean, this does kind of get at the deeper issue of, of these social media networks launching and just having like zero moderation apparatus in place. You read these stories about Facebook and Twitter just having like warehouses full of people constantly doing moderation and these new sites just get caught flat footed. Okay. Okay, well, moving on for a second, Will, across the country and various places and cities in the United States, we've been seeing more COVID-related restrictions being imposed by local and federal authorities, obviously with the Delta variant raging and the other issues that are still going on with the pandemic. You have been lurking on a lot of anti-vaccine forums online. And can you give us a flavor of what the specificities of the response to this are? I mean, obviously, these guys are not happy. That goes without saying. It's sort of lurking by necessity because I was banned from kind of Reddit's main vaccine forum because I or anti-vaccine forum. I was sort of mixing it up with people a bit too much. So as a result, I've sort of been working out some issues of my own. I've been hanging out a lot on these forums. And so they censored you. Right, exactly. One guy was like, my boss, he's bullying us into getting the vaccine. And I said, sounds like there's a reason he's the boss and you're just an employee. (laughs) So they got mad about that. But look, sometimes you got to get ugly on the internet. But anyway, so people are kind of closing in. Why do you do this to yourself, man? I mean... (laughs) That's a larger topic, right? So there is this sense, both in the United States and in Europe, that the more restrictions are being imposed on the unvaccinated. Obviously, we just saw New York put some in, and France in particular, they've really been cracking down. And so I've been watching as these people on these forums sort of deal with what it could start to mean to be unvaccinated. And what struck me as interesting is that for, for most of them, not all of them, but for most of them, and, and you know, we're already talking about a pretty hardcore group of the unvaccinated if they're on this forum, for most of them, it's pretty much like as soon as there's any inconvenience. They're like, ah, well, you know, I put up a good fight. Time to go get my jab. But what are some things you're seeing? I imagine it's getting rather, to use a diplomatic term, spicy. So what's funny is like, so most of the attitude on these forums is like, like, it's crazy how quickly it escalates to like, I will do a mass shooting, right? And then everyone's like, up, 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 you know? Do do they actually say that? And do they get? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, if I can't go to the grocery store, you're going to see it on the news. I'm going to die on a bed of brass, I assume to be like to gun cartridges. Do they get suspended or banned for that? typically on these red they get upvoted man they get treated as heroes so anyway so all right but then you know it's something like well my job is mandating the vaccine or my university is and people are like well you got to transfer schools and which is you know a hassle but not like the greatest hassle in history and the guy's like uh, no, I think I'll just give in. <laughs> you know? So what you're seeing are tons of these wannabe anti-vax extremists who the moment like push comes to shove, like a tiny little shove. They're just like, yeah, okay, fuck it. We'll just, just for our own convenience, we'll take the shot. Yeah, and so like, I mean, there was one person who said, you know, my, my job's gonna require it and I think like all my industry's gonna require it, so I'm just gonna do it. And basically all people can say is like, well, I would just say move to the woods and learn to grow all your own food and maybe become sort of like an itinerant mountain man. And <laughs> they're sort of like, well, no thanks. I think I'll just do this, feel a little lousy for a day or two. So this is a recurring theme when people are like trying to confess to this online safe space. Okay, I'm not going to put my money where my mouth is. Actually, for me and my family, it's not worth it. Tell with it. We're getting the shots. When those moments happen to all these different people, is there an immediate 
like dissension by all of their online friends, like cyberbullying them. Yeah, you're wimping out. I mean, they are right to an extent that they are wimping out. Right, exactly. I mean, they really are like, it's sort of like, you know, if you've been play acting with your buddies and suddenly you're like, all right, it's time to go home, guys. And it's like, hey, we were having fun. I'm glad they're wimping out. This is a good thing to wimp out on, get the vaccine. Well, a big part has been a big fallback for people has been, I'm going to get a commercial driver's license. I'm going to become a trucker. But there was sort of a cautionary tale of a gentleman who said, don't get a commercial driver's license. It's a pain in the neck. I don't like being a trucker. And then he said, you'll be across the country when the feds come to vaccinate your family, whatever. But his solution for everyone was, he said, as for me, I'm moving to Africa to walk across the continent and learn to exist entirely on faith. You guys could maybe join me. <laughs> people said, well, you know. That's it's- what like people say during the spring semester of their sophomore year. <laughs> As for me, I'm taking a gap year. I'm 60. So with the people who are talking about getting commercials, driver's licenses, and becoming truckers, is that their first recourse to not being mandated to get the coronavirus vaccine? There are other things you can do to do- You don't have to become... Like, being a trucker is a hard job. <laughs> there are easier dodges you can make. I do think there's a lot of kind of like watching repeats of uh, that show Dirty Jobs and being like, hmm, which one of these could be me? Sort of in practice. It, it, and I think the larger import of this is that we're seeing basically a little shove goes a long way in terms of getting people vaccinated. There was a poll out yesterday that said 41% of some of these vaccine hesitant people said they'd get it if it was required to fly in a plane. And so it has been interesting seeing it, this facade sort of crumble in my internet hangouts. So we are recording this on August 3rd. It's the beginning of August, the month where a bunch of pro-Trump partisans and conspiracy theorists have been claiming for months will likely be or could very well be the month that Trump is heroically restored to the presidency and Biden is thrown out on his ass. Right now, we're welcoming on the podcast our colleague, Daily Beast reporter Kelly Weil, who just popped a story about how these conspiracy theories are getting zanier just at the moment where it looks like they're going to implode on themselves because Donald Trump is not going to be back in office this month. Kelly, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit more about your reporting for a story headlined, My Pillow Guy Punts Timeline for Trump Retaking Power? as August conspiracy theories get wackier. Whose conspiracy theories are getting wackier? Where are they coming from? And what are they? Sure thing. So even before Biden was inaugurated, there were all these QAnon-ish conspiracy theories saying this is the date that Trump will be reinstalled. These are the dates that the election will be overturned. And they come out with a new one of these every couple months or so. They had two back-to-back ones that failed in March. So they needed to have another date. They pushed it out to August, you know, just a little breathing room. What was the reason that they stated or reasons that March ended up not working? (laughs) Did Trump just need more time to like redecorate at Mar-a-Lago or Bedminster? So... These people aren't really focused on the reason for the failure. They're looking ahead. They they glass half full. They're pivoting. No, they the reason for their March predictions were that they thought that there was an alternate inauguration day that was pegged to old laws before the 
phony government took over, but that clearly didn't pan out. So they're not dwelling on it. The August date came about, it was actually a lot of it was via our friend Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, who predicted August because he said that he wanted to get some lawsuits in front of the Supreme Court. He thought that would be rolling in July. And then by August, they would have gone to their natural conclusion and Trump would be reinstated. So Mike Lindell, who is a staunch Trump ally and friend and also the CEO and creator of MyPillow, a recurring character on the show and on In our national consciousness. Yes. And in our national consciousness, of course, he is one of the biggest drivers, if not the biggest driver behind August, August, August. Can you tell our listeners how much he has been hedging on this for the past few months and what he told the Daily Beast yesterday? Sure. So Mike Lindell has been promoting August as like the probable, probable timeline. Right. He's almost certainly the one who got it in Trump's ear indirectly at first and got Trump to believe it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And then in turn, now there's reporting that you and Will have done that Trump is going around telling folks that he thinks August is going to be the month for him. So straight from the MyPillow man to the uh, shadow presidency in Mar-a-Lago, you've got this weird conspiracy theory that you want to dismiss, but unfortunately people with power and millions of fans, are, they follow it. So that's how the MyPillow guy got it started. And recently he has been pegging a lot of the August theory to this cyber symposium he's holding that's going to reveal the true fraud behind the election. Bear in mind, please, that he has already made three full-length documentaries that, about the election that have all been debunked. So it wouldn't hold your breath. I got to talk about the cyber symposium. I mean, this is for me the event of the year. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about Woodstock 99. I feel like this is kind of shaping up to be a similar event. It is in what, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. This is going to be Mike Lindell's inviting everybody. I mean, it sounds like a like it's going to be a real crazy time. He's, uh, you know, I want to, friend of the pod, Zach Patrizzo over at Salon, says that according to the King of Restful Sleep, the symposium will feature a mock election every two hours in which a hacker, quote, flips the votes, unquote while a, quote, cyber guy, unquote, goes into a soundproof room with headphones on and reappears moments later to decipher the meaning of packet captures. Now, if that means anything to you, you're nuts because it does. I mean, it's it's just craziness. And it's going to be Mike Lindell is inviting like every reporter he talks to. It's going to be a great party, I think, and possibly the end of American democracy. Kelly, what do you think of the cyber symposium? Oh, man, it's so funny. A while ago, I broached my editor possibly trying to cover uh, Burning Man in the COVID era, and I'm not doing that. But I, I think this is better, right? This is like, this is fire fast. No, that sounds just absolutely insane. It's, It's just sort of these prophetic events that have been really churning this Q-adjacent movement along when they've got very little to to go by. Their profit is gone. And so they're just going out for a success of Woodstock events and big conferences where every couple hours, somebody big has a whoopsie and calls for a Myanmar-style coup. Well, and apparently Mike Lindell has bought out supposedly every hotel room in Sioux Falls. So for... This weekend, Sioux Falls will be a MyPillow company town. I mean, it is going to be everywhere. I can't imagine. I, I think it, it is going to be like heightened levels of American delirium. I don't know, a Sturgis for the election fraud set. Well, maybe that's redundant. And so I think it's going to be a, a great experience. I'm sad to miss it, but I truly believe it will be some of the craziest news we've seen this year. It sounds insane. And it sounds worse than the two Flat Earth conferences I've attended. 
Well, that would certainly be something. Kelly, additionally, the Ron Watkins, famously the young man pegged as being Q, the Q behind QAnon, he's dabbling in this kind of stuff and he's getting in with Lindell. What's going on there? Oh, yeah. So Ron Watkins may or may not be Q, but he has been posting a lot of conspiracy theories contingent on Mike Lindell's cyber symposium. So saying, look at all these things that are going to align in mid-August. We've got the cyber symposium, which is over multiple days. So saying that something aligns with it, let's let's take that with a grain of salt. But also saying that there's an emergency broadcast uh, system test on that day. And if you remember back in, I think, 2018, Will, you wrote about there was a emergency broadcast system test and everyone thought that Trump was going to go on and announce the arrest of Hillary Clinton or whatever. Lo and behold, didn't happen. But those two things Things are aligning again. And then just yesterday, Ron Watkins was uploading what he said were um, barnstormer new whistleblower papers from someone inside Dominion. Well, people immediately noted that those papers are publicly available online, and it looks like somebody just printed them out and scanned them back onto Telegram. So Ron is using his very Q-connected following and just linking it right back up with Lindell. Kelly, I think you're underplaying here how serious Ron made these leaks sound. He said he literally gave the Admiral Akbar thing from where he's like, a lot of people died to get us this information, you know? <laughs> and then it is, as you said, I mean, it is just like you can go on the California Secretary of State's website and find these election machine manuals. And he's just like, like people really risk their lives to get this stuff out there. Yeah, he said like our whistleblower risked his life. He risked his family. And I'm like, damn, like, I don't even know if that has the HPTTS secure code in, in the URL. You gotta raise the standards for a whistleblower a little, I think. You said this was a publicly available document. Yeah. So that would be like one of us risking our lives, like going through the jungle with a machine gun for a court transcript. That is correct, except sometimes you have to pay for a court transcript. Oh, so it's hard. Okay, yeah. This is like going through the jungle with a machine gun for like an Arby's menu, you know? Kelly, what do you think the larger <laughs> purpose here is going on with in terms of the date keeping getting moved? I mean, it strikes to me that you, you kind of just need to keep the fires burning up until the midterms, and then you can kind of keep just bouncing it down the road. I mean, what do you think? Absolutely. There's this book I like called When Prophecy Fails, and basically they studied this UFO cult. And it had a firm apocalypse end date in sight. And when that came and passed, this was in the 60s, none of the cult members really left. They said, oh, you know, we just didn't believe hard enough or we misinterpreted the prophecy. And some of them doubled down in their belief to avoid embarrassment. So having these missed dates doesn't actually necessarily spell failure for the movement. Some people will get frustrated and leave, but a lot of people will just stick around. And it's concerning for two reasons. It's concerning because as some researchers, and I think the Department of Homeland Security have noted, sometimes you get really frustrated people who say, well, this is taking too long. Screw it. I'm going to force the end. I'm going to storm a government building. I'm going to make pipe bombs, whatever. But it also does just keep people engaged enough to get mobilized around midterms or to sow enough doubt in the elections system that there's support for these new bills that erode voting rights, erode the basic tenets of democracy. So these conspiracy theories are funny, but the outcome is like really genuinely quite grim. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right. Today on Fever Dreams, we're joined by reporter Stephen Monticelli, who's here to discuss one of the, I think, more nefarious and obviously fake bits of right-wing, I don't know what you call it, garbage floating around on the internet lately. Stephen Monticelli is a freelance reporter in Dallas who's written for both the Dallas Observer and our own Daily Beast. He's also the publisher at left-leaning literary magazine Protein Mag. And notably, Stephen and I were both Q-pilled together at the Dallas QAnon conference. Stephen joins us today to talk about some very shady astroturfing that went around the right-wing internet. Stephen, thanks for uh, coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Now, set up for our listeners what this bit of, this all starts with a flyer circulating in some of Dallas's tonier neighborhoods. And what did this flyer say? So this flyer was ostensibly sent by a Black Lives Matter organization based in Dallas called Dallas Justice Now. The pitch was that they wanted these wealthy liberal parents in this ritzy enclave of Highland Park to not send their children to the Ivy Leagues or to top tier colleges to save room for black children. So the idea being that they have enough privilege as it is and that they uh, don't need to solidify that by going to Harvard. But some of the people that received these immediately smelled a rat. They thought this was something that no legitimate organization here in Dallas that's been involved with the Black Lives Matter movement would decide to do. And so they started poking around. And let me just read a bit from this pledge they were asking people to do. And now, if anyone believes this is a real thing that would be put out, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Okay, here's the pledge they want, you know, these white parents to take. I understand that access to top schools is a key component in economic and social advancement. Therefore, I commit that my children will not apply to or attend any Ivy League school or U.S. News and World Report Top 50 school, so that position of that school is available for people of color. This strikes me as very much, obviously, the creation of a Twitter troll. What did you find as you started digging into this? So, this organization, no one in Dallas that I had spoken to that's involved in the protest movement, which I've covered extensively, they'd never heard of these people. They'd never heard of this organization. No one knew of the names behind the organization that were associated with it on Facebook or in uh, press releases. And so we started digging in. We, we noticed that they had backdated posts to February, despite the site only having appeared itself in June. Some internet sleuths found a bit of code in a WordPress template in a test site that shared the name with this website that linked back to a Republican PR firm based in Salt Lake City. They had made multiple test sites, according to internet certificate records, for Dallas Justice Now. I mean, I got to say, the footprints here are not exactly hard to find. I mean, I think the thing we should establish is while all this sleuthing is going on, all these people in the right wing media are taking this ostensibly at face value. I mean, they're like this this radical group. Now, finally, these wealthy liberals are going to get what's coming to them. I mean, where was this getting picked up? Oh, it made it all the way to Fox News. Candace Owens described it as the bigotry of low expectations. Talk about irony. First, really, though, got picked up by the post millennial. Big surprise. That was one of 
the big first boosts. Which is sort of like a garbage news site that really just pumps all this kind of stuff out. That's correct. I think that's an accurate representation of it. But it first came out in this little tiny paper that's not really a paper. It's a digital news site called Dallas City Wire. This is an interesting website because it's a part of what's been described by New York Times and the Columbia Journalism Review as a part of a pink slime network, which basically is a mix of algorithmically generated junk content and intermixed with mostly right-wing propaganda, often pay-for-play sort of stuff. So this article first appears on this website that's linked back to a certain man named Brian Timpone and just has lingered there ever since. There's been no new articles on that website since that article was first broken. So it started this chain reaction that we trace back to first there and then these pay-for-play press release news websites that are just junk city. I think what's interesting in what you're laying out here is how so much of the right-wing media ecosystem, and particularly on the internet, is all you need to do is have like the barest glimmer of credibility so that the person repeating it can say, well, I don't know, it looked real to me. You can have these PR newswire sites where you can put up whatever. You can have a website that sort of looks like a news website. And then it goes from there to someplace like Tucker Carlson's show, the most popular cable news show in the country. And there's a big thing on Twitter where these right-wing characters will take something that's obviously fake at the level of uh, the classic, you know, the woman who carved the bee for Obama in her cheek backwards, or the guy who graffitied his own house with Black's rule. There's just no sense of commitment to like, if you're promoting something, you should know that it's real. These guys often will screenshot something and say, is this real? And put it out there. And it's like, no, it's obviously not real. Anyway, that's sort of my point, Rand about these guys. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And furthermore, I mean, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, it's been the target of this exact sort of designed misinformation or hoax. I mean, whether it's the allegations that they bought luxury buses or the paid protester tropes or the idea that uh, BLM donations went to the Democratic Party, like Candace Owens herself pumped this stuff out and then it just gets repeated in the echo chamber. There's no real basis for any of the claims, of course, but the veneer of legitimacy allows for it to be repeated as such. And then very few of these organizations will ever issue a correction or ever issue the follow-up of, oh, hey, funny thing about these test sites that have the same damn James Baldwin icon that the Facebook page uses. It's sloppy work. It's really sloppy work here. And regardless of whether you believe the company's denial that they had anything to do with this particular hoax, they've been linked to another network of dark money operations, including several in Wisconsin, one in Portland, one in Michigan. I can go on. So they accidentally revealed their whole backlist of clients effectively through this uh, misstep. And you were flicking at this earlier, but in terms of how far this traveled, this wasn't just like a fringe bubble thing. This bubbled up to the most watched show On Fox News and cable news, uh, Tucker Carlson show on Fox, Mark Stein was the fill-in host for Tucker that day. But he described this thing as, quote, one of those stories that would have been a rather dull satire a decade ago. But these days, it is just standard operating procedure, end quote. And like you said earlier, these guys almost never correct this shit. In the next broadcast with an oopsie-daisy or appending the article or anything like that, because there just is no consequence for it whatsoever. As much as they rail about, like, the fake news, Washington Post or New York Times or whatever, the Post or the Times got something wrong on this level, like an exact one-to-one in terms of substance. It would be a humiliating, like, black eye that would result in corrections and apologies to the reader. Here they just move on. 
They almost always pretend like it never happened. And then it just festers. It never goes away. We're going to be hearing about this. Don't send your white kids to Brown. Is Brown in the Ivy League? I don't know what's in the Ivy League anyway. Probably until the day we die. Like, this is just not getting out of the conservative bloodstream at this point. Right. I think that's exactly the sort of thing that we've heard in the aftermath of it being exposed as a hoax. It's either some equivocation of, oh, well, that's not definitive evidence that it's a hoax. And I think it's ridiculous, regardless of whether it's real or not. Or we hear some things like, well, this is so believable that I'm not surprised I was fooled. But that's just someone telling on themselves, in my view, in terms of how far down this sort of junk diet of media they've gone to actually believe something like this with none of the people being quoted ever actually showing their face or being accessible to any other journalist other than this particular person who broke the story all the way back in October that this group existed and yet will refuse to confirm that they ever spoke to a real person. It's just such a strange saga that it, that links so many aspects of the unhealthy right-wing media sphere together. I felt like Charlie from Always Sunny when I was looking into this thing. <laughs> were there any politicians like on Capitol Hill or anywhere or in the Republican Party who were trying to act as a oh, megaphone state for this Oh, senator story? definitely retweeted this story. She actually went on to delete that tweet, which I think is... Well, that's a progress of some kind. That's a move in the right direction. And surprisingly, the Federalist issued a correction, although uh, it was buried at the bottom of the article. I'd have to go back and look at the retweets. Big figures were pushing this out. I mean, it made it all the way to the Daily Mail, for Christ's sakes. So it had international implications. And yet there are even British stories that sort of echo what happened here in terms of uh, one I recall reading about manufactured outrage regarding hypothetical proposals to remove statues across England, kind of echoing the sort of thing that's happening with Confederate statues in the United States. All of England's statues are ugly as shit. It's okay right. if they removed all of them. And the thing is, though, those proposals were fake. It was all ginned up just oh, to it. generate right-wing outrage. So that's my point. It's This is a tried and true strategy. I don't think it's necessarily new either. An NPR article recently quoted a great scholar on this, Tomiko Brown-Najin. I may be saying that last name wrong, and if I am, my apologies. But basically comparing this to the anti-civil rights playbook in the 1960s, just disinformation, discredit, and try and throw whatever you can until it sticks at a movement like this. But this incident, I think, is can all agree, is probably particularly pernicious in the sense that it's almost like digital blackface for an organization to be created like this without any authenticity, just for political point. It's shameful. In reporting on this, your story for the Dallas Observer also touches on how this is illustrative of these much larger networks. Beyond just this one incident, I mean, what do you think this tells us about what's going on in general on the internet, and particularly in these kind of right-wing uh, content factories? Well, I think that there are deliberate strategies that people are considering and putting into play as demonstrated by the hiring of you know a Republican PR firm. I think there's a whole playbook effectively, you know, people like Steve Bannon have essentially promoted these sorts of tactics as ways to create disruption and these things are all tied in into a network of interacting forces. So let's look at this specific example and draw out a few of them. There's the ginned up hoax story that gets put through the PR newswires, gets picked up by the right wing web of junk sites 
gets amplified by the likes of Fox News and the Daily Mail. And then whenever it's debunked, guess what happened next? A right-wing YouTube video that got spread on a botnet describing the video as true while also strangely bringing up the issue of school vouchers and school choice. So there's obviously some set of forces with money at play that are putting out disinformation and junk in a very highly organized fashion, and we only catch it sometimes. I don't want to make people conspiracy theorists or, you know, want to put tinfoil on their heads and be paranoid all the time, but these are sort of like active measures that are being deployed in the suburbs just for the sake of fueling a culture war. Right, and it really does underscore how so much of the organizing principle behind so much of mainstream right-wing news media in this country is that you can't prove a negative. Even if they get it wrong, it's like, well, you can't prove that this wasn't somehow actually happening and this isn't just people covering their asses. So why not? Right. The damage is done, you know, once it's out there and it's stuck in people's heads and it's been put in front of millions of people, it's really hard to do any sort of corrective action. Stephen, and I'd leave this open for Swin as well. What are some of your favorite right-wing hoaxes that have blown up? I think of the whole thing, you know, we had for two years running where like Antifa was going to desecrate the graves at Gettysburg. People came, one guy accidentally shot himself, fortunately not fatally. That turned out to be the creation of a left-wing troll, but obviously plenty of right-wing blogs were happy to seize on it. Any other uh, classic hoaxes jump out at you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not a great one in terms of the outcomes, but probably my favorite that comes to mind is that people were disbelieving the reality of forest fires because of Antifa and their alleged involvement in creating them to loot their homes. It's just tragic what people were willing to believe on the internet while quite literally the fire department was saying, stop listening to Facebook and get the fuck out of your house. It's mind-blocking. Crazy stuff. Okay, my absolute favorite, all-time great. It occurred in October 2016 during the height of the general election. And we actually wrote about it at the Daily Beast with the headline, Drudge and Limbaugh fall for Twitter joke about postal worker destroying Trump ballots. This was something where Randy G-Dub, a hilarious left-wing comedy account on Twitter, tweeted something to the effect of how he loves working at an Ohio post office to help rig the election for Hillary Clinton and tearing up ballots that vote for Donald Trump. Clearly just a joke about this like voter fraud fiction and hysteria that was going around on the right. So Drudge picked it up. Rush Limbaugh talked about it as if it was factual on his show. And this became a thing for a while to the point where government organs start having to put out actual statements saying this is not happening in this Ohio post office. And this was all about them falling for something that was clearly a joke. If you click on his Twitter account, you can see that he is is just this left-wing online comic. And he was not working in a post office. He lives in California. <laughs> it was just a blatant example of how low the bar is for so many of these guys in terms of how much they're going to buy it. This, this wasn't something that was based on a phony press release or something. It was just a really funny joke. Okay. Well, hey, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Your article for the Dallas Observer is called Flyers threatening white HP parents who send their kids to the Ivy League reek of fakeness. Where else can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I am at S-T-E-V-A-N-Z-E-T-T-I. That's Steve Anzetti, sometimes in the Daily Beast as well. Do you have a getter account? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
All right, so we've been seeing a lot of reporting on the aftermath of the Trump administration on the ways that Donald Trump tried to affect the election results or get the election overturned, including a recent New York Times report that included the indelible line of Trump saying, you guys may not be following the internet the way I do, which I think all of us can find some use for in our everyday lives as we try to explain the internet. But Swin, you've been doing some reporting on what was going on with the former president's internet habits. What's going on there? Well, the line you just referenced was something that was jotted down in a document during the Trump era DOJ by Justice Department official who was writing down what Trump was telling his Justice Department when they were on conference calls with him or different meetings and trying to tell him that we do not see this evidence of widespread pro-Biden fraud that you're seeing. We don't have the authority to overturn the election. You're just asking us for things that we cannot do. So Trump is like essentially badgering his own DOJ during this tumultuous presidential transition. And among the things that he hounded them with, according to these DOJ notes that were uh, publicly released recently, was that his DOJ officials weren't following the internet the same way Trump was, so they weren't seeing all the quote-unquote evidence that he was. Obviously, this is a big Donald Trump move, and it has been for years. For instance, during the 2016 campaign and following it, if he said or claimed something that was absolutely batshit or completely fabricated, he'd just say it was something he saw on the internet or I only know what I read online about it. So out of pure morbid curiosity, I wanted to figure out what Trump meant by quote unquote, the internet when he was hounding his Justice Department about this. So we started calling up sources who worked very closely with Trump in the White House during this presidential transition and during his anti-democratic crusade. And we found out that among the sources of information that Trump was referring to specifically when he was telling his Justice Department about the internet was articles on the Gateway Pundit. Will, can you tell our listeners for a second about The Gateway Pundit? Because this is a website that you are intimately familiar with and have been for years, and I'm sure some of our listeners are as well. Yeah, The Gateway Pundit and I have a parasocial relationship. I love reading it, but I often get in trouble. Its founder often ignores my emails. Jim Hoft, right? Jim Hoft. Jim Hoft himself, joined by his twin brother, Joe Hoft. So The Gateway Pundit is so is a blog that in traditional times you would hope would not be playing a role in a potential overthrow of American democracy, but this is the times we live in. So the Gateway Pundit is so named because it's based out of St. Louis, the Gateway Arch, and the idea of Jim Hoff blogging from within the Gateway Arch while appealing is really not the case. I actually didn't know that that was the reason. I thought it was just like a gateway to like truth or something. Well, because it's a gateway to right-wing lunacy, and that's really what it should be. So the Gateway Pundit is really like a pretty crazy site that constantly posts hoaxes, but is enormously popular on the right and is just like sort of a fascinating glimpse. I mean, it's a pretty interesting site. It's like very zany in a way that a lot of other right-wing sites are kind of a little more controlled. They get a lot of crazy stuff going on there. So Trump, you were saying he was getting very into the Gateway Pundit. He was getting some juicy intel from the Gateway Pundit. Officials who were working in the Trump administration at the time who we spoke to actually saw the then president during those few months carrying around printed out pages of the Gateway Pundit. He was bringing these around the White House literally into the Oval Office. In one instance that we documented, a then senior official mentioned that Trump actually handed them a page or two from that website. It was an article nonsensically alleging this massive pro-Biden election fraud. And then President Trump told this official to find out more and to get on it. We need to do something about this. We need to get on it. 
And when this person looked at the page, it was just the gateway pundit. It was this idiot lunacy that should just be relegated to chain emails that your like deranged uncle might one day BCC you on. Places you will get a copy of printed copy of the Gateway Pundit handed out to you. Like a library lobby, maybe? Or the White House. Exactly. The most powerful office on the face of the planet. A lot of national pride points on that one. And just to digress for a moment, Will, you mentioned that the Gateway Pundit has recently become obsessed with monkey ownership? Does this have anything to do with its role in attempts to overthrow democracy in America, or is this entirely unrelated? Well, this is a new thing. Like I said, I mean, I'm probably the world's like biggest fan of the Gateway Pundit. I love this site. And it's so weird. It's weird. Its writers' neuroses are broadcast onto the site in a way that you don't get from a lot of these sites. And so Cassandra Fairbanks, who's a writer for the Gateway Pundit, has recently decided to adopt a monkey, which, you know, whatever. But as a result, the Gateway Pundit has now become obsessed with monkey ownership. And so this is kind of like the Tiger King, I guess, except for monkeys. And so like there's this one case that involves this very hot button monkey ownership case in Missouri. I guess there's another Gateway Pundit connection there. But normally right wing blogs don't really care about who's allowed to own primates. Right. Usually only I do. Right. So now the Gateway Pundit has become obsessed with this case. It's making it into a right wing cause celeb. And the reason this comes up is because that there's this lawyer named John Pierce, who people who read the New Yorker's Kyle Rittenhouse story may remember. This is a guy who attaches himself to a lot of right-wing cases, and he's now become... He's a king. He's like an incredible character. He's enormously, or at least was as of two years ago, nearly a million dollars in debt to the IRS, all these other debts. He had a very tempestuous relationship with his ex-wife. but And so he keeps attaching himself to these cases. Most importantly, he's super close. He represents more January 6th defendants than anyone else, despite having nearly no history as a criminal defense attorney. And so now you might say, ooh, yikes, January 6th, pretty important case. You might want to focus on that people potentially going away for decades but he's also now become the monkey lawyer because of the gateway pundit inspired by the the attention this was getting and so you see in the ways that that the gateway pundit really successfully forefronts things in the right-wing imagination to the extent that whether it's the monkey case or donald trump walking around with it he's really kind of the, the hidden power behind the throne right and this website's level of influence is both sad and perversely hilarious in a way because if you actually log on to it and spend like five and a half seconds scrolling through it, you'll understand why it is one of the absolute dumbest corners of the internet. Not just right-wing internet, but basically any internet whatsoever. Just how drenched it is in conspiracy theories and just making shit up. I remember that during the Obama years, it was considered on par with like Twitter egg accounts with seven followers that were just spewing out nonsense. And this was something that if you referenced it in a story to sort of do like, I don't know, like a trend piece about where the American right wing was going, you might get laughed at because it's like, oh, what? why are you doing that instead of quoting someone like Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan or John Boehner? But the level of influence that it has gained over the years, not just the Trump era, but before that, and then particularly during Donald Trump's presidency, it reached a point where it helped helped bring the country to the brink of rupturing the democratic order. And that's all because some guy like Donald Trump is just an extremely online old guy who reads this stuff, seems to take it seriously at least, and who binge watches TV all the time that entertains him or upsets him. Well, you know, they said the New Republic and the Clinton administration was the in-flight magazine of Air Force One. I think the Gateway Pundit is the in-house blog of Mar-a-Lago.
On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues of The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.